Our epistle lesson this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2. We're reading verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks. Thanks that you speak to us through your word, that you open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things. We ask that this morning, that you would open each and every one of our eyes, dig out our ears so that we can hear you speak. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We're continuing in our series, slowly walking through the book of Ephesians during the Colson's sabbatical. We had the delight to hear from Mike Malone the last two weeks, and next week we'll hear from Aldo Mondin. He'll be joining us uh, preaching uh, towards the end of chapter two. But as we read and study Ephesians, there are two crucial items we need to keep in mind. First, God is in the business of transforming the world It's easy when we come to Ephesians to read this letter individualistically as if it's just me and Jesus. We read the yous as singular yous. But we were reminded by Mike that the yous here are not just y'all, but all y'all. And so this is for all of us. He is transforming you. He is transforming the person sitting next to you. He's transforming our brothers and sisters around the world, and he's even transforming all of creation, reconciling it to himself. It's cosmic gospel renewal. And then secondly, he's working out this renewal in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center. He is the focal point of the book of Ephesians. He is, frankly, the focal point of the entire Bible. He is front and center And Jesus must be your primary focus when reading the book of Ephesians. If he's not, then you miss the greatest of gifts God has ever given to you. Now, speaking of gifts, I received uh, a really extravagant gift about 10 years ago. Cassie and I were spending some time with our friends Matt and Pam. Now, y'all don't know this, so I'm going to tell you, but Matt is one of the primary reasons. He is primarily responsible for your enjoyment of quality barbecue at Christ Church events. Matt has instilled and imparted great wisdom in me when it comes to grilling and smoking. I cannot take credit myself. I have to give credit where credit is due. He's transferred this wisdom. He's also transferred lots of other wisdom, like being a father and a husband, but he transferred this wisdom of grilling and smoking after he had given me an extraordinary gift, gift of a ceramic smoker. Now, y'all, y'all may have no idea what that is, and that's okay. And it may not sound impressive to you, but we are not talking about your 
like $100 Weber kettle grill that takes the charcoal briquettes. We're not even talking about like a bullet metal smoker. We're talking about a grill that is based on the Japanese-style Mushikamado grills of southern Japan. They are ceramic. They are brilliant. They are very expensive. Uniquely versatile ceramic grill smoker combinations. You can smoke pork at 225 degrees for 18 to 24 hours. I've gone almost 20 hours before. You can bake a pie at 350 degrees, yes, on a smoker. You can sear steak at 600 degrees. You can even cook a pizza in three minutes at 900 degrees. This is extravagant, it's extraordinary. And during my time in Augusta, when Matt offered me this gift, I was making pennies working at a church. Uh, I was not a pastor yet, I was just a mere youth intern. I would have never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be able to afford this kind of grill. Even now, it's extravagant and extraordinary, but my friend gave it to me free of charge. It was a unique gift. It was no ordinary gift, it was extraordinary and it was extremely gracious, uniquely valuable, and it would be inappropriate for me to treat his gift as ordinary or common. But all too often, we treat gifts this way, as ordinary. All too often, we come to the gift of salvation, to the grace of God, and we treat it as ordinary, as if it's just something we don't really need, but it makes us feel better about ourselves, makes us feel good about our existence. N.T. Wright, a New Testament commentator, wrote in his commentary on Ephesians that often today, people don't believe there's much wrong with the human race and with themselves in particular. As a result, they don't see very much need for God's grace. All that God then has to offer, it seems, is a kind of spiritual enhancement of ordinary life, a gentle enrichment of what's already there rather than a radical rescue from imminent disaster. And friends, we treat God's grace like that that's just mere spiritual enrichment. I was speaking with a dear saint this week and I told him I was preaching on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and he said to me, oh, John, I love those verses. They're some of my favorite in the Bible. They're some of the best known but least believed. And friends, that's true. We often say with our mouths that salvation is an undeserved gift from a gracious God who has worked it out in his son. But in our hearts and in our actions, we treat it as common. We treat this gift of God as a way to spiritually enhance our ordinary lives. But salvation is no mere enhancement. It's far more than that. It's God's extravagant gift of new creation in Jesus. He has taken dead people and made us alive. It's a radical transformation, a transformation that's done to you, not a transformation done by you. And so in these three short verses, Paul packs a massive amount 
a profound theological content about how this transformation occurs. So we're going to take a look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the foundation of salvation. We're, we're going to look at the appropriation of salvation, how we receive salvation. And then we're going to look at the fruit or the response of salvation, this grace of God that he has worked in us. First, the foundation of salvation. The Apostle Paul begins with these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul roots the radical transformation of salvation in the grace of God. Now remember how Mike defined grace last week. It was uniquely helpful. He said, grace is mercy rooted in love, acting to relieve your distress. Now oftentimes we think of grace merely as unmerited favor. Now that's of course what it is. Of course it's unmerited. It's unique. That's a helpful definition. There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn God's affection or his favor. So of course it's unmerited. But grace is more than just favor. God's favor always acts. In his grace, he acts to relieve you of your distress, in his grace, God acts by way of the sacrifice of his son to rescue, from, to rescue you and me and all his people and his creation from the imminent disaster brought on by our sins. Brian Chappell is the stated clerk of our denomination, and he tells a story that, that happened many years ago in his hometown. Now, Chapel grew up in a river town whose economy depended on the commerce of the river. And so it was necessary to be able to travel up and down the river by boat. And for boats and ships to move freely, a barge would dredge the bottom of the river and it would deposit the sand on the river's edge, creating these mounds, mountainous mounds of sand because the sand was wet when it was deposited, the outside of these mountainous sand dunes would dry up and they would crust over, leaving wet sand inside this hard, crusted outer shell. And y'all know what happens to sand when it dries, right? We're, we live in Florida. All we have is sand. You know what happens. When it dries, it settles. And so as the inside sand dried, it settled, and it left this vacuous cavern between the top crusted over portion and the inside drier sand. It was also a very fun play place for young boys. And one day, two brothers were playing on these sand dunes when one began to collapse. And because they didn't return home for dinner, their parents began to worry, and they called the authorities a search party was launched, and they found the younger of the two brothers. He was unconscious. He couldn't speak. He was almost totally buried in one of the sand dunes, up to his shoulders. The only thing you could really see was his neck and head. And they began to dig and dig and dig. 
And finally, they dug around to his waist and he regained consciousness. And they asked him, buddy, where is your brother? And he said, I am standing on his shoulders. You see, the older brother, because of his great love for his younger, he found his way underneath him and he became the foundation on which his brother's life was saved. And Jesus, your older brother, was gracious and incarnated the grace of God when he found his way underneath your sin. He found his way underneath your sin on the cross. And it's this grace of God, chiefly displayed in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, that is the foundation of our salvation. The grace of God acting to relieve your distress There is no foundation on which you stand other than the shoulders of Jesus. It is simply by grace that you have been saved from your disaster and from mine. And that grace is active and it's become the foundation in and through Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we see the appropriation of salvation how we receive salvation. Paul says in verse eight that this salvation by grace is through faith. It's through faith, through trust, through humble belief in Jesus that you receive the grace that God has extended and accomplished in his son. Now one of the ways that we get messed up in the Christian life is to think of salvation as a reward. To think of it as something we've earned or a reward for our good works, that somehow we've received this blessing of salvation because we're good or because we're strong or because we're admirable. Our natural inclination is to place this claim on God that by our good works, we owe, that he, by our good works, he owes us something, claiming that our goodness, by our obedience, we deserve his gift. And so instead of placing our faith in God, we place a claim on God. Let's talk about how that actually plays out in our everyday lives. Because I think it's far more subtle today than it was 2,000 years ago. It's easy to point at the Pharisees, right? Easy to point at them and say, look at what they're trying to do. They're adding rituals like circumcision and sacrifice to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's easy to point at them and not to look at ourselves. So how does it happen in the 21st century? One way to get at this is to simply follow Paul's example in Romans 2. He's speaking to the Jews of his day and he says, for passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We can often tell how we are living a works-based relationship with the Lord by how we judge someone else's works, by how we judge someone else's Christianity. So in what ways have you sat in judgment on other Christians? Have you ever found yourself saying, how can they be a Christian and vote for that candidate? Have you ever asked, 
how can they be a Christian and send their child to that school? How can they be a Christian and post that on social media? That's a lie, that's not true, that's not their life. Of course it's not, it's social media. Nothing on it is true, not really. They take this certain theological position or that theological position. They must not be Christian. Friends, what makes you Christian is faith in Jesus. Do you draw a line in the sand other than faith in Jesus that determines someone's relation to God? Now, of course, there's some outworkings of that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but when you sit in judgment on someone else's Christianity, you are making salvation a matter of work, not faith. Because the thing of first importance is Jesus. The thing of first importance the one thing that appropriates the salvation that God has accomplished for you is faith. To sit in judgment misunderstands the nature of the equation. The only thing we add to the equation of salvation is our sin. We cannot add any work. No matter how good, no matter how righteous, no matter how wonderful or admirable or strong, you cannot add work because it's faith. John Calvin wrote in his commentary on these verses that faith brings a man empty to God, that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. And friends, we come empty, open-handed. That is what faith does. It does not bring our works to God and say, look how wonderful I have loved you. Look how wonderfully well I have behaved. It comes empty. Faith is that mechanism with open hands by which we appropriate and receive the salvation that Christ has already won by the grace of God. It's not an exchange of goods and services. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You simply receive it. So the foundation of salvation is grace, and you receive that salvation through faith in Jesus, humble trust in Christ. And then lastly, in verse 10, we see the response of salvation. Look with me there. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul states that we are new creations in Jesus, created for good works. Now, we just said that works don't earn you anything, right? But Paul, is, uh, but Paul is saying that good works are actually part of the equation. So what part? What is the equation? What part do good works play? How are we to understand good works in the Christian life? One way to better understand this is to note where Paul places good works. What is the location of it? He places it on the back side of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works that no one would boast, for we are his workmanship. We have been created, we've already been made alive, and now we are here to give, to to render good works in this creation as thanksgiving to God. 
Good works are the response. This is the difference between the indicatives of the gospel, what is true, and the imperatives of the gospel, what to do. So indicative and imperative. The indicatives always come first. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what's true. Now you shall have no other gods before me. It has always been this way. God calls us to himself and he calls us to live lives of obedience. The indicatives always come first with the imperatives as the faith-filled response to the saving grace of God. And notice that this is a reversal, a reversal of one and two, of of verses one and two in chapter two. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are now created by union with Christ, recreated, made alive. We walked in sin, following the course of this world. We are now to walk in good works, following after our Savior, walking in the good works that God has prepared for us. Sin causes us to live subhuman lives lives of decay, lives of death, living as less than God had intended us to live. But we are now his workmanship, his creation. A term that, this this term workmanship has a connotation of artistry and beauty, the beauty of God's creation, of his creative work. And so as God's workmanship, We are God's masterpiece. The Christian life is a symphony of obedience. Each one of us playing our part in the orchestra of God's glory. And as God's workmanship, good works are the outworking of salvation. We are created first in Jesus, and then we are to walk in good works God's transformative work of salvation has taken residence in us. And then we begin to live more fully human lives as he restores our humanity. I was listening to a podcast the other day by a psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, and his, fr- his friend, Pepper Sweeney. That's the real name, Pepper Sweeney. Uh, and they're talking about uh, human beings as embodied physical creatures. And Thompson says this, He says that if I'm not sensing something in my physicality, then it has not yet taken up residence in me. Now the same is true with good works. When God's saving work has taken up residence in you, by grace, through faith, then the evidence of his residence is seen in good works. Now this doesn't mean you will be perfect. It doesn't even mean that the line of sanctification is straight up. It's far more a roller coaster. But God has prepared good works for you to walk in. It's walking in these characteristics of Jesus that God has prepared for us. 
I'll close with this. Let's go back to the gift that I received from my friend Matt. Would it be appropriate for me to let this grill just sit on a stand and do nothing? Would that be an appropriate response to my friend's gift? As Chuck says, shake your heads vigorously, no. No, of course not. It's appropriate to put the grill to work, right? It has fed ravenous 11th grade boys on a guy's night eating buffalo wings in our tiny condo in Augusta. Dozens of people have enjoyed smoked turkey on Thanksgiving. I've cooked innumerable pizzas. It's actually one of the funnest things for me to cook. And I have smoked hundreds of pounds of meat. This grill has been with us from our condo in Augusta to our tiny quadruplex apartment in St. Louis to Chuck's garage because our apartment here wouldn't let us have a grill. He used it that Thanksgiving. (laughs) And it's now sitting on our patio at our house. It's seen birthdays. It's seen anniversaries. It's seen dinner parties, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners, church events, and everything in between. When you receive an extravagant gift, it's appropriate to put that gift to work. And that's the same, the same is true of the gift of salvation. We are to put it to work. God offers us this gift by his grace. It is only by his grace worked out in his son through his sacrifice. And we receive it, letting it take up residence in us. Letting God himself take up residence in us by faith. And then we put this gift of salvation to work by walking in the good works that our creator has created for us to walk in. This is good news, and it is God's gift. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this gift of salvation. You have been so gracious to love us from before the foundations of the world. And in time, in the fullness of time, you sent your son Jesus to offer himself as a sacrifice by your grace, keeping steadfast love and kindness to us. God, would you teach us to believe and help us even in our unbelief? Expose those areas that we don't believe and convince us of your grace and empower us to walk in newness of life, we ask in Jesus' name.